Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime, anywhere? Right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended as personal medical advice. For that, please see your trusted healthcare provider. So today's topic, it's a hidden cause of heartburn in children and adults. Now, most of us have all experienced heartburn or the medical term gastric reflux at some point in our life. And usually it's associated with eating the wrong foods, spicy sauces, greasy foods, sometimes too much alcohol. You know, and typically it gets better, you know, when we reach out for those medications that lower the acidity, like over-the-counter Mylanta or Pepsid or even Prilosec. However, when children and infants uh, develop gastric reflux, and hopefully it's not from alcohol consumption, uh, it's a bit alarming. And, uh, you know, babies aren't supposed to have acid, you know, reflux. So it was really quite a discovery, uh, I believe, back in the early 1990s, uh, when gastroenterologists found that many of these infants and children with signs of gastric reflux had a condition that had really never been known before called eosinophilic gastritis and eosinophilic esophagitis. Now, the GI doctors found on endoscopy cells that were lining the GI tract in these patients that had an abundance of a cell called an eosinophil on the biopsies. Now, eosinophils are typically associated with allergic inflammation and with allergic diseases like allergic rhinitis, asthma, and eczema. So what does this all mean? You know, was it a food allergy that's causing this inflammation in the esophagus and the stomach? And why was it causing symptoms such as heartburn and even choking? Well, my guest today, I'm super excited to have on is Dr. Jonathan Spurgell, who has been at the forefront of the research uh, in this area of eosinophilic esophagitis and gastritis. He is the Stuart E. Starr Chair of Pediatrics, the Director of the Food Allergy Center and Chief of the Allergy Section, all at Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania, which is better known among us colleagues as CHOP. I mean, it's known as the premier place for uh, to take your children with uh, complex medical conditions. So I'm super pleased to have Dr. Jonathan Spurgell on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for hosting me. So I'm going to actually change one thing you just sure, said. Sure, go ahead. Reflux in infants is like seen in every single infant. So like 80 mm. to 90% of infants have reflux, right? Okay. Okay. Re, re, so reflux in an infant is sort of normal. All babies oh, spit up. Right? Okay. Spitting oh, up babies. That's, oh, that's common, true. Right? That's true. Right. I mean, right. So, my little ones. Yes. Uh, so you just think about that. So babies yeah. spit up and that's reflux. Okay. That's an important point because, you know, again, in, in, in setting this, the stage for this, that, you know, again, that's why it could have been overlooked so easily that, again, it was just thought of as normal. Is that, is that what you're trying to really say? Yeah. So that, so there was, Two th things. So it, the why it was overlooked for many years it was for exactly what you said. It was, and it's the way it often leads to the delay in diagnosis is it's sort of normal in babies, right? And babies spit mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. And so that reflux symptoms that you see in babies that when it doesn't get better, because most infants outgrow reflux by... 12 months, 18 months of age. Okay. And so when it doesn't get better or it doesn't get better with the medicines you mentioned, the over-the-counter Mylanter and Pepsid and Omeprazole and all those sort of things, then you have to think about 
other reasons. What else is going on? Mm-hmm. Do um, infants you worry about lots of other things, right? They make sure it's nothing anatomical or something really right. funky, right? Mm-hmm. But when they don't, when you ruled out those other things, then you think about um, eosinophilic esophagitis. Um, well, the, what did, what, let me ask, interrupt for a second. So, so this is the key question I wanted to ask you. How was it originally discovered? Was it did it, you know a, a gastroenterologist? Because you know it's a special stain when they have to look for eosinophilic. Right. I don't know if they routinely look at that. And so that's a, yeah, it's a routine stain. So oh, it is. In, okay, eosinophils have been noted in the esophagus probably back in the seventies or the first case okay. reports of it. I mean, it's just a normal H and E stain that you do when you look at the tissue is sort of a standard stain. It's not that uncommon. Okay. Um, when you look, when you look there and um, yeah. So, I mean, why? So why yeah. So why did they, this, no. mm-hmm. it was discovered? I mean, the, the case that really sort of the case reports that really brought it out was a case series done by Kevin Kelly and you Sampson when they were both at Hopkins. Oh, okay. And what they found out at that time, they had all these patients who were on, who had severe reflux, weren't getting better, even had gone surgical disinfundoplications, right? So they had, wow. And they still weren't getting better. So they put them on an elemental diet and they all got better. Mm. And then when they added foods back in, disease came back. And that sort of really proved that, that it was the case way back when, 1990s but there are a few other case reports in the adult literature from the earlier 80s um of people with dysphagia so that's the one of the big things about yes. eoe yeah. mm-hmm. the symptoms change with age so in the adults it really is now the most common cause of food impaction so in adults we think about it as in food impactions and dysphagia or trouble swallowing mm-hmm. yeah that's a really important point i i think that uh one of the most dramatic things and that really does tip it off is when someone tells you they're choking on their food because that yes. again is not reflux that's that's a whole other ball game and as we'll get into that has to do with the inflammation and the pathophysiology that happens when i guess this is goes untreated but let me ask you this again just to go one point so you're saying they were routinely doing uh these things Each- for esophenols but but i guess there was a certain number they start to see it was like greater than 15 right, so- in the field when they look under the microscope um so yeah so the number that you see so normally in the esophagus you see zero that's Mm -hmm. the normal number so if you Mm -hmm. look at a normal esophagus it's totally zero Mm -hmm. um when they started to see more the cutoff they came with um just to sort of say hey these people had a disease Mm -hmm. and this wasn't of course any inflammation any reflux by itself can cause some esophageal eosinophilia okay um they came with the number of 15 eosinophils per high power field. Mm-hmm. It was just sort of a somewhat arbitrary cutoff that seemed to separate patients from one group to the other. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they, they want like enough of a barrier to say, okay, this is not just routine inflammation. This is Correct. something significant. You know, it's funny also that you mentioned about the Hugh Sampson, you know, putting them on the elemental diet. You're not going to remember this, but I have a vivid memory. I ran into you once at a conference, it must have been 20 years ago, and I think you were speaking about this. And I ran into you in one of the hallways at the conference, and I said to you, Dr. Spiegel, what, what do we do about this eosinophilic esophagitis? And you said, just tell them to avoid the four or five major foods, and they'll be fine. Um, but- in a lot of ways, it happens. 
It's changed a little, but not yes. a lot. Okay. Well, we're going to get into the changes because I think they are important as well. But okay. So what do you, um, what do you tell a parent that, uh, you know, you've made a diagnosis now of the eosinophilic esophagitis, meaning why the child is either having trouble swallowing, choking, or refluxing? What, you know, what's your advice that you, you know, in, in, uh, in, in confirming the diagnosis and in, in their, um, in their care. So this is you being a good provider is telling the families, look, Hey, you have this disease of the esophagus, you have inflammation. Now we can understand why your child's having the symptoms. Okay. And then we say, look, Hey, we do, there are various ways of treating it because it's, we know for most, if not all patients, it is a sort of a non-classic food allergy. So not a food allergy that causes highs and anaphylaxis, but a food allergy that causes inflammation in the esophagus. And we go over the different ways of treating it. There is sort of, you can do it by medication or diet. Right? Those are two different ways. And we sort of, and each one has its pluses and minuses. And you sort of go over what, what is best for the family and what do the families want? Because some families really want something simple. Well, like mm -hmm. I want a, a medicine I can take and that really do my diet. And there's some patients who really are want to do nothing with diet, nothing with medications at all and want to mm -hmm. do, let's take the root cause out. Um, how, do you how do you determine, and I know you know this, but I want to explain for the listeners, what's very tricky about this, as you know, is that a lot of these patients, the, the, the allergy testing, whether it's by skin or blood, is negative, Correct. right? So is it through challenges? Like, how do you determine? Because, of course, that's the biggest issue with kids, as you know, as an expert in this area, like starting to take out wheat, taking out, you know, maybe uh, milk or eggs, when we don't really know, whereas when we do... When we know with a child that has really bad hives or god forbid anaphylaxis you know we do testing and we have a pretty good idea they need to avoid that food so how do you determine how they should start limiting or do you have them just essentially limit all those key foods and right. then slowly reintroduce so uh, it's a it's a great qu question is excuse me yes um how can we tell the the way that you, the the way that you do standard testing skin tests, blood tests um, are great for telling for foods that cause IgE-mediated reactions. So those are reactions that cause hives, anaphylaxis. This is a non-IgA-mediated food allergy, so it does involve that molecule. So testing for that molecule, which is what skin testing and blood tests do, it's not going to show you anything. You may mm -hmm. get positive results, but they're really probably not related to this disease. Um, there's another test out in the market called IgG testing. IgG testing just tells me what you've been eating. Right. Yeah, Whether... that's a that's a very important thing point, by the way, because I know you know a lot about food allergies. Just for our listeners, because I see this all the time in my practice, patients unfortunately spend $500, they get what is called that ALCAT test with IgG, and it shows they're positive to all these different foods, and they're distraught. And I tell them, this just tells me you're eating these foods. It doesn't <laughs> tell you're allergic to these foods. So that, yeah. I just wanted to so point that out. You are totally correct on that. It just tells me that, hey, I we you've eaten. Right. X, Y, and Z, and which is not. So the way that you can tell right now, so 
It is unfortunately trial and error, right? Okay. It, it, there is no, so basically what you have to do with this disease is you take the food out, right? And if your symptoms are gone, that's fantastic. Um, unfortunately, right now, we still have to do endoscopies with biopsies every time to watch progress because symptoms don't always cre- correlate with biopsy findings. You sort of mm. need in this disease is um, both symptom improvement and biopsy improvement. So both. There are some examples. Hey, I've taken milk, egg, and wheat out. I'm completely better. And I've tried to add milk in, and he's throwing up again. I don't need a biopsy. I know milk is making right. me sick right now. How long do you do that for, like a two-week trial? So, I mean, you know, so typically you do about two months. Two months. Where you have symptoms to meet the food will, every Symptoms year. probably will get better in two weeks. Mm-hmm. You could, But you probably just don't want to do biopsies that soon. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that too, because obviously that that's a big, big deal in kids too, putting them under anesthesia. What about, I was starting to read about and hear about this, the string test. Is- right, so there are a few things um, that what we want to call about non-invasive tests to measure esophageal inflammation. So there is, a few, there's, in terms of anesthesia, there's a few places that now do what we call transnasal, so mm. which is you go down the nose and do the endoscopy. You can do that without anesthesia. So there's a few yeah. places. That's better, but not so much fun either. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. better, right? So we can get rid of the anesthesia. So the string test um, is a where you basically sw- swallow a string. You leave the string in for about an hour, and then you pull nice. it out. And it's okay. a little unpleasant, but there's yes. no anesthesia. Right. Um, and then you can look on the string for the eosinophilic proteins. Interesting. Um, okay. But so... It is an approved test, but right now it's not covered by any insurance companies that I know of. Um, do you find it? Do you find it valid and useful in in your following um, patients? In a research standpoint, yes. Clinically, since it's not covered by insurance, we don't use well, it. Well, I mean, you know what? I, we, I have another episode coming up about insurance. You know, I mean, I had did, just did an episode last week with a really good allergist, rheumatologist. And it was shocking for me to, to hear that like sometimes patients have to go on methotrexate and other medications first before going in some cases to a biologic. We're going to talk about this, you know, with EOE, you know, because the insurance company won't pay for the newer medication unless you've, you know, been on the other medication. So uh, I'm just curious about your opinion. If a patient says, look, I'm going to, for my child, I don't want to be having an endoscopy. If we can monitor it with the string test, if you feel that would be adequate, you know. So I do think, so it, de- it depends what, you can't use the string test for the initial evaluation. Okay. Right? But for some of the follow-ups that we have, um, of when you're adding milk or taking things away, I think it will be really, it will be very useful. Yes. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you think also too, I'm just going to throw this out. I know this is getting very technical for the listeners, but you know, what's really interesting in our field, like this, uh, what's called a, uh, CD markers, which in some cases, you know, is, is, again, I've read the literature and I've talked to some other experts It can possibly replace food challenges. Like when you measure the CD three marker for, you know, uh, basophils, and this has to do with food allergies. Is there anything like that for eosinophils that you're right. aware of? So is there a non-invasive blood test right. that, that exists at the current time? Mm-hmm. The short answer is no. And okay. there is nothing that people, 
I mean, there's been reports of stuff. I mean, people have looked at eosinophilic progenitor cells. There was a paper mm -hmm. out of the Cincinnati group. Mm -hmm. um, it has, unfortunately, when I've seen his mo the most recent abstract, it looked good on the first few patients, but when it's panned out, it hasn't. Mm. Um, there is a test that I, we're developing that's looking at T cell function. So as we think this is more of a T cell epithelial disease, so we're getting a little technical here, um, that, that, that is, is responsible for the disease. I mean, we think from a pathogenic standpoint, eosinophils are the end product. Mm -hmm. This is disease of sort of the epithelium triggering the T cells or the T cells triggering the epithelium or the combination. But if you, we can find that you can get food specific T cells that you can measure in the blood. We've mm -hmm. seen this as well as the group down in North Carolina and we can measure them in the blood and that might be a way to look at it. Um, it is in the process of being validated now. So they get a validated test. You need to do literally hundreds of patients. So we're about two thirds to three quarters of the way done. Okay. So, well, so that's promising, you know, because again, promising. You know, so it, it will be a way to maybe identify the foods. Okay. It may, it's probably not going to replace the string test or the biopsy or maybe another way to identify the foods, but that's still okay. little, that's not commercially available. Okay. And we're mm. doing it purely on research. So when we get patients results, like what, did, what results do you have? Like, I can't tell you, it's only research. I know, but you know, sometimes you'd be surprised as you know, and, I, and, I, and again, I've been following your work for quite a while. Like sometimes before you know, you turn around, there's new diagnosis, there's new treatment. Yeah. Let me ask you something too, because two other really important areas related to this, and which is kind of surprising, inhalant allergies. Can that trigger the eosinophilic esophagitis? Because I think I've seen some reports about that. And is that important? So, um, so good question. So, how? So, for the vast majority of patients, it is it's a food allergy. A lot of patients can't figure out what food it is, and that's okay. because they don't do the diet correctly or won't want to do the diet. But mm -hmm. almost ninety plus percent get better on on a food allergy. Okay. Um, there's a few, there's a small percentage that is just pollen. So there's a few case reports of individual patients who have EOE purely only during pollen season. Hmm. Rare, but it's, there's been a few cases. Okay. There is a slightly larger percentage, but not not significant, but it's not zero, 10-ish percent, maybe a little higher that you'll see EOE, they have a food trigger, but their EOE triggers when their allergies are really bad. So bad, uh, so they, okay. so, I mean, if you think about it, for EOE, you swallow a food and you trigger that inflammation in the right. esophagus that causes right. symptoms. During bad pollen season, you're probably either getting bad post-nasal drip or swallowing mm. enough pollen that you can get the same thing. Okay. So, so it's definitely been seen. Um, it is definitely seen in some of the sublingual um, immunotherapies to pollen. Oh, yeah, I want, yeah, oh yeah, I want to get into that in a second too, even about the foods. Let me ask you one other question before we get to that too. So would you say also too that it's rare to see eosinophilic esophagitis or gastritis also in a non-allergic patient? Because sometimes even I see adults 
that it's surprising. They have no history of allergies at all. And they've been diagnosed by the gastroenterologist with eosinophilic esophagitis. So is that also something in the in the young kids that you're not seeing the eczema, allergic rhinitis, and they, so, they still have so, it? Mm, or rare? So it's in most patients with EOE have other atopic disease. Mm -hmm. It most. is probably most. It's probably like 80%. Okay, that's so, important. Okay. So it's so most patients with EOE have either asthma or allergic rhinitis, had a history of atopic dermatitis, have sort of food anaphylaxis, right? So they have right. something else. So yeah, it's part of that general atopic picture. Um, but it's not all of them. Okay, I think that's really important to clarify. Now, the really important question I want to ask, and I'm sure a lot of my listeners are going to want to know about this, because I've actually done about two or three podcasts on food allergy treatment. I'm actually actually a little bit at the forefront. I've been doing sublingual allergy treatments with my patients for food allergies, similar to what Dr. Kim does, uh, who was originally at Duke and now at uh, North Carolina. But as you well know, because again, you've been very involved in this space, probably the more well-known food allergy treatment is oral allergy immunotherapy, or OIT. And while it has had some spectacular successes in helping to desensitize kids to peanuts and other foods, which is super impressive, there is a certain percentage of those patients that are developing, as you know, eosinophilic esophagitis, which, you know, obviously yeah. causes a problem. So what's your thoughts about that? Do you think that it, this could be a, a, a problem, you know, in, in treating these patients? So, so um, so it's a, it's a great question, and, and I don't think we have the final answer. There's a couple of interesting um, caveats to it. So there, there's when we so in general, when you do oral immunotherapy, and it works great in many patients, but there's a group that fail because they get really bad GI symptoms. Right. And most of the time, when you stop the food, the GI symptoms go away, and you're just done, right? How many of those patients with the bad GI symptoms have eosinophilic esophagitis, right? It's a little bit unknown because most people are like, hey, I've stopped the food. Why am I getting a biopsy? But when they've done the biopsy, many of them end up having EOE. So the rough estimate is anywhere from 5 to 10% of oral immunotherapy have EOE. So well, the they also, as you know, too, they can't stop the therapy. That's the, you know, they, they can be desensitized. Then they have to continue to eat the food. And is, is that right, right. So, sort of like, it's sort of like, I see what, what I think about, it, and that's why I like the sublingual drops better. It's like, unfortunately, the higher dose of the oral immunotherapy is like going against their body's own immune system. Their body really doesn't want those foods. Right. So, so here's, so the question is, if you, so we're going to answer this, this is a okay. multi-pronged answer. Okay. So, well, that's why we have uh, the expert here. <laughs> so if you stop OIT, if you don't stop OIT, does EOE continue? Right. There's a couple, there's a case report out of the Arizona group where they saw transient EOE. Mm. Um, I'm not sure how often that really exists. And I don't know if some of that transient was due to the fact they treated it with medicine. So it's a little, okay. to me, a little bit unclear. Um, so some of it in general, I think you're right. If you don't stop it, EOE is going to persist. So the question is, did is it EOE just to the food that's causing it? So the most of the time when you stop the food, so you're doing peanut and you get EOE to peanut, you stop the peanut oil immunotherapy, the EOE will go away. In these patients, I tend to think is the peanut 
was causing two diseases. It was causing anaphylaxis and EOE, right? So in those patients, they have to weigh the do what we call shared decision-making. You can stay on peanut oral immunotherapy, but now I have to give you medicine for your eosinophilic esophagitis. Ooh, and there's various medications. But this is interesting, but that gets complicated. Right. Um, but then the other issue is, is sub, can sublingual cause EOE? And I think- well, that's, That was my next question for you. And I, I think I've seen very, very small reports about it because we are giving a much lower dose. What I try to explain to patients when I sit down and talk to them, you know, again, this is beautiful work done by Edwin Kim and um, and his group that, you know, typically in, um, you know, as you know, in OIT, the doses get up to uh, several grams, whereas in um, sublingual immunotherapy, like the high dose, for example, in peanut is like two or three milligrams. So there's really magnitude of order difference of what you're right. getting. But anyway, what's, I'm just curious, because I'm sure- So you, the you know, answer is, I think as you push the doses, so it depends how high you go in your sublingual. I mean, if you start pushing, because most patients want to get on to a higher protective yes. dose. Mm -hmm. And as you get to the higher protective dose, you're going to get it. Mm. I, you know, it's interesting because I think it's such a bigger difference. I fortunately have not really seen that. I, I mean, I've seen mouth itching and some other things, but yeah. nothing. So nothing I, I, as, as you push up to the, the if patients just want to stay on a 10 to 20 to 30 milligram dose, they're probably less likely to get it. Mm -hmm. There's a probably a dose response curve like we do in general. Anything we do, right? A bigger dose, you get more symptoms. So I think- there Well, you know, it's interesting that. what Edward Kim showed, I think in his work that it was, which was strange, but it, you know, it kind of went against our, our nature and allergy, you know, versus always fighting off homeopathy. But he really, he, as you know, in some of his papers in like five-year studies, he showed that about 70% of these patients, even at that two or three milligram dose, were able to, some of them were able to tolerate up to eight or nine peanuts, which again, what I tell my patients is we're not looking to have you eat peanut butter sandwiches, unfortunately. We just right. don't want, if you go into a restaurant and there's a peanut accidentally in your sauce that you end up- Right, so it is, right. And then you look at the OIT literature where you put them up to 300 to 1,000, Right. You're now going to tolerate like 24 peanuts, right? So you there right. is a dose response curve. Right. I agree with you. Most of my patients don't want to eat that many peanuts. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> not true for milk and egg. They want to. Yeah, they want milk. that. Yeah, I don't blame them. You know, you want the milk want and egg. They really and, want to uh, have that ice cream sundae. Yeah, peanuts, exactly. no one wants the peanut butter and jelly uh, sandwich. Um, I want to move on to the last area, which is so important and where you've done groundbreaking work. As I said in the beginning of the podcast, I mean, I just got my Annals of Allergy uh, journal, one of the top allergy journals, and your name is all over it and, you know, leading the way on what's going on in the new exciting treatments. Uh, also interesting, I know Evan Dillon at North Carolina has been, doing, you know, involved yeah. with that too. But would you do for the listeners, just explain the older treatments for, or maybe they're still current for eosinophilic esophagitis and the new ones that you just published, which I think are sure. all very groundbreaking. So um, when we think about treating eosinophilic esophagitis, there are two therapies. We talked about diet, now right. medications. Right. And medications tend to fall into three categories. Mm -hmm. There's proton pump inhibitors, which we use, which is the same medicines we started talking about at the beginning, treat reflux. Right. Um, we have found that high dose proton pump inhibitors actually have an anti-eosinophilic effect. Mm, so at right. very high dose, they block them up. They have some effect potentially on something called STAT6, which blocks um, allergic inflammation. So, so that is one way. So we, we tend to start with that. So if you get better with the over-the-counter medicine, 
you have pretty mild disease. Um, oh, wait, are you calling this over-the-counter medicine? You're, you're, when you say over-the-counter medicine, what are you referring to? Are you like myelanthus? Oh, omeprazole. Well, okay, that's over-the-counter, but that used to be prescription, and it's still a pretty potent medication, but okay. Yeah, but that's right. but it's an over, it's, it's okay. uh, omeprazole. Okay. So a pro omeprazole. Right. So Prilosec, Nexiums. Nexiums, right, got it. All those okay. things. Okay. Um, if you, so we typically start with that. Then if you fail that, then there are choices uh, traditionally was something called swallowed steroids. You basically right. used to take asthma medicines poorly. So you had to take an asthma medicine in a slurry or you swallowed instead of mm, inhaling right. your, inha your, your inhaler, getting into the lungs, you would swallow the propellant from the asthma medicines to coat the esophagus. And that worked reasonably well, but it was pretty inconvenient. How would you do this with a young child? I'm just curious too. So, so let's say you have a two or three year old. Would you so do we, it through a nebulizer or would you so actually? So we would take us the nebulized solution and mix it into a slurry and swallow. You say it. slurry like like a drink, you like a slurry like a drink. So you would take like a teaspoon mm, okay. of mm. maple syrup or honey. I get it. Mix it with the vial, right? To try to okay to do it. Then obviously that's all off label. That's mm -hmm. not sort of what you have to do. Right, right. That's never been that's never been an FDA approved. It's not been FDA approved. It's been it's it is approved in Europe. It's approved by the okay. EMA, so but not approved in the US. I have a question too. How could that work? I'm just curious, because you know, the, the transit time in the esophagus is pretty rapid. Is it just by it just like flowing down there? It's it gets flowing enough? down. It, it, the contact time, that's why you sort of have to make it into a thick slurry. The contact ah, time is enough that you just like a train. Mm. It's always surprising. So it's one of the reasons why we tell patients that you take it, you don't eat or drink afterwards. Oh, okay. I let it sit there as much mm -hmm. as possible. Mm -hmm. You don't rinse your mouth out afterwards, which you do with like your inhalers. Right, right. We try to tell patients to take it before bed so it sits longer. We try Was there any issues? It's interesting between the high dose PPIs and the, the steroid stuff too of thrush with any of these kids? Do you or? get some thrush? Not as so five ish percent in the study. So five, 10 percent get thrush pretty easy to normal thrush that's relatively easy to treat it's not particularly okay. resistant but you definitely do see thrush okay um so those are was the uh, ways treated however in may of this year um a molecule called dupilumab or dupixent mm -hmm. um was approved for the treatment of eoe for 12 and above so this is a biological so an antibody that blocks the il4 receptor alpha and that molecule um, blocks the production, but that blocks the signaling, so the pathway of IL-4 and IL-13. And those are two key molecules for the production of allergy. I mean, the is just approved for, e for eosinophilic esophagitis, but is it approved for many other atopic diseases? It's been approved for atopic dermatitis probably yes. close to five years now. Right. Approved for asthma, nasal polyps, and... Well, yeah. And so, so you feel it's pretty safe. I know I, I interviewed a doctor, as I said last week, Dr. Belostotsky in New York, uh, who uh, does deals a lot with um, the biologics, just that's part of her practice. And uh, she felt it was pretty safe. I was shocked that it was you're allowed to self administer at home. Yeah. Um, so, um, so I have no concern. I mean, 
So you're not worried about we, anaphylaxis, like we did have to worry with Zola. Yeah, and I think the Zola anaphylaxis, honestly, we've been using Zola for 15 years. I think the rate of anaphylaxis is probably pretty minimal. Never, okay. I think it was a few case reports down in one spot, and I think it honestly, it was some odd cross reactivity in a localized area of the U.S. Because okay, really, we really haven't seen it. And I think one of the case reports was someone getting treated for idiopathic anaphylaxis. So it was oh, like, uh, that was, yeah, yeah, okay. I'm not, yeah. so I have no concern. So when we think about biologics, and you'll see all the ads on TV. Right. Um, so a lot of biologics, you really, really worry about turning off your immune system and you're much worried about ability to treat, to fight infections. So right. you can't fight infections well. Um, and some biologics may affect your, your ability's rate to fight cancer, right? Right. The general biologics in the allergy field, such as omelizumab, which is anti-IgE, or dupilumab, or benralizumab, or mepilizumab, or, yeah. do not have these those things. effects. They do not. Wait, they can do you clarify? So you, you wait, I want to clarify this because this is really important because that's what something I was always concerned about. So you're saying that these biologics, the ones you were just mentioning, I'll, I'll use the brand names because sometimes it's easy to remember, Dupixent, um, that they target specific molecules of what we call cytokines and they do not lower immunity because you get when people watch commercials and i've always been aware of this and I, I have friends of mine that are rheumatologists you know they're always obviously worried about tuberculosis they are worried about certain cancers like lymphomas with some of these biologics i'm not sure if it's the tumor necrosis factor blockers but you're saying with these you're pretty confident yeah i'm not like the tnf blockers <laughs> and the jack inhibitors which are the two other ones that you'll see a lot on yeah. Um, they definitely have those worries. Right? Okay. I mean, you see TB and things like that. There's not those risks with dupilumab and omelizumab. I mean, there's a theoretical risk with dupilumab because that blocks the T2 pathway so well. So when you think about it, mm-hmm. for your listeners, the T2 pathway is what turns on allergies. Right. And your body's supposed to have a balance between the T2 mm-hmm. pathway and activation of the sort of Balance against the T1 pathway, and the T1 is the one that, if that's right. dysregulated, you get diabetes, right? So you have this balance, and there's a right. regulatory cell on top that's supposed to balance, keep everything on. Right. So people worry, in theory, that if you knock down T2, you're going to have more T1. It has not been seen yet, but people do worry. The drug's been around for five years, so maybe we'll see it at some point. I do think long as we're not messing with our T regulatory cells, we'll be okay. If we mess with T regulatory cells, then I start to worry. I mean, that's what some other drugs work at, some of the more potent immunosuppressants right. um, that we worry about for transplants and things like that, where you really need bigger guns. So at this point, I'm not too worried about those things. There's but that's the one potential worry that we would see at this point. How long when, would you, tr- yeah, how long would you, tr- let's say you diagnose a child with EOE and I don't know, they've been eliminating some foods, but obviously they still, once in a while, I guess they're going to friends' parties, they're eating some of the foods and you put them on Dupixin and you're controlling them. How long do you have a time factor? Like you say, okay, I'll do this for six months and then we'll take a break and see how they do. What's what's the so, clinical? So, uh, it's a great question. I know. So 
My general thought is this is a chronic disease, like many other diseases which we treat in allergy, that you it's unlikely to outgrow it. Okay. But we don't know if this drug has the holy grail in allergies is disease modification. Can we change the disease process? Mm-hmm. Um because in generally in allergy, what we've seen is disease is a very small percentage of patients who outgrow it. So tip what we've been trying to do is go to the lowest dose that works, right? So if they the drug is right now is prescribed weekly, right? So if oh, it is, it's every, weekly. I thought it was every two weeks. It's every no, week. for EOE, it's weekly. Every week. So they have to give themselves an they have to have an injection, injection once a week. And you're so having you're having like a parent do it or the parents can do it. They can do it themselves. This is self-injecting needles, depends. It's so it's like an EpiPen type of thing. Okay. Yeah. Um so they they if they well you check in three or four months because you have to make sure a drug really works for them, right? So you do right. a biopsy, say it works, your scope right. is normal, you have no symptoms. Right. Then we would say, hey. If you want, we can go every other week. Let's okay. do the, try to spread it out. Mm-hmm. Spread it out. And we see how far we can spread it out. Once we sort of get the lowest effective dose, we don't know what the right answer is. But from what we did in the past for like, um, when we were using just swallowed steroids or PPIs, we left them on that dose for two years. And then we tried to wean them again. So we just wanted to get some really, let's heal them, keep them well, not do anything. You're great. You just, you're on every other week. You're doing well. Let's just leave you on that. We'll, we'll see you back in a year. Renew your prescription a year after that. Let's see if we can stop you then. The drug's been only out since May. So I have no idea what this will so it's work. Kind of, so it's early. Okay. It's early to tell. But that's what we tried for swallowed steroids and a few patients we were able to wean things but okay. most we could not so this one we don't know okay. i want to ask you one other question too because again you're such an expert in food allergy i know you trained at mount sinai where dr sampson was for many years i don't know if he's still there and he's still there he's still there retired, but he's still there. yeah okay because i know uh dr sickwood kind of took over a little bit yeah um why do you think Zolaire didn't become the holy grail for food allergy? Because, you know, blocking IgE. Oh. I know I thought it was a, a patent dispute. That that's why it kind of oh, never gets through. Com- so com- complicated answer. Mm. Um, so some of it's the patent issue. Okay. So um, when they did the clinical trial, oh, my God, how long ago? It was a long time ago. Yeah, it was like so 10, there was a clinical 10, trial. There was the original Tanex clinical trial. Right? And Tanex was another pharmaceutical sort of company that I can't remember was Genetech or Novo. One of them bought out, and when they were doing the clinical trial, they had too many severe reactions on the challenges. So the company stopped the trial. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So right now, there is a clinical trial being led by Bob Wood down at Hopkins something called Outmatch. And Outmatch is the use of Zolaire as a preventative something for allergic reactions for children with multiple food allergy. Oh, wow. So that, so it may, so it is back. Oh, okay. And, That's good. and this is the phase three clinical trial, which hopefully will be done shortly. It has been moving very slowly due to, it had, it started, it was, during the pandemic, everything sort of stopped. Yeah, sure. Right. So, but that trial is, best of my knowledge, almost done. I have, I've, 
I'm I'm an investigator on the trial. Um, so we have uh, it's it's moving along. I was just curious because I I was wondering in your experience if you'd have you know because obviously Zoller it w- has been widely used now from moderate to severe asthma and you know a lot of these patients sometimes have food allergies if we were seeing any protection and I know also as you're aware that sometimes even though it'd be very expensive they were recommending for immunotherapy whether it was subcutaneous or OIT yeah, so sometimes I, to have concomitant Zoller treatments to help okay, so you know. so it's been. So people have looked at it as an adjunct in oral immunotherapy. Uh, there's been probably a dozen studies, and it's been effective. So it can get people up to doses on oral immunotherapy faster. Mm-hmm. And my, I am highly optimistic. I have not seen any of the data. We're all blinded. I am highly optimistic that it's going to work, right? Yeah. Is it going to let people... So basically, what you'll have to do is you'll have to be on Zoller. And when you're on Zoller, you are protected to... Right, a lot of the allergens. To, to a lot of allergies, but not you won't be able to eat that peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but gets cross-contamination. Um, so it will be very useful for that and be theoretically useful for cross any food. But it's um, we haven't seen the data yet, so we don't know. That's going to be very tough, though, getting the insurance companies to pay for two immunotherapies, right? I mean, to give the Zolaire Plus pay for whether it's allergy injections or sublingual yeah. drops or whatever. Yeah. OIT. I mean, for, like, for those things, what I think, so what I think, I mean, this is my, so I've been thinking about how I would do this. Once say everything's approved is like, right, right. you put someone on Zolaire right. for four to six months, right. you get them up there and then you start them at a maintenance dose. You can skip all the buildup Oh, interesting. Put them on the maintenance That's dose. very bold, but yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, I like that and you thinking. just leave them on the maintenance dose. Like, okay, yeah. you're done. Yeah. I, because, but, I, you know, but I'll tell you something. I, because we, that was one of the clinical trials. They basically did yeah. that and they started everyone at 250 milligrams. And they all did fine. You know, it's interesting, though. You know, this is one of the things also I t- explain to patients because I gave a lot of thought to this. See, what's so interesting about what we do, you know, and I trained at the St. Luke's Roosevelt, the original algae the Cook Clinic, the original place where immunotherapy started in the United States. And what's really interesting, you know, even though it's an older therapy, I think that it's kind of like working out. It's like something about the process of starting low and building up that the immune system goes through these, you know, iterations that it eventually gets to that immune tolerance, which, you know, but when you give pharmacologics, I mean, maybe these new biologics may help you skip the line, but I don't know. And I, I wonder, yeah, it's an interesting question. Do you need yeah. that gradual buildup? Right. I, I don't think we know. Yeah. All right. This has been an amazing discussion. I feel so privileged to have this time speaking to you. Is there anything else you just would like anybody? The no, to know I would about? say I just want to reiterate what you said in the beginning. This is in an evolving field, and talk to your providers because things change all the time. It really okay. does, and it's. Um, thank you for allowing me to participate. No, again, this you you kind of epitomize when I say the smartest doctor in the room. I mean, somebody like yourself, we want to know, and you answered so many of the questions about the safety and and went through everything. So hopefully any of our parents that have kids that are struggling with these kind of problems have a resource and can get help from their doctor. So again, thank you so much, Dr. Spagel, for coming on. Thank you. My All pleasure. Right, take care.